and Bethany C. Morrow's newest novel, Cherish Farah, the calls are coming from inside the house, and so are the screams. Our fiction pick for July will keep you cool for the rest of summer as it sends chills down your spine days after you've read the last sentence. Farrah Turner is a 17-year-old black girl who plays a game of dominance as she manipulates her way into the home of Cherish Whitman, her best friend and adopted daughter of a wealthy white family. But soon, everything she knew begins to unravel and motives are soon revealed. Stay with us on the next episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And we are recording live from somewhere, from a very <laughs> special place. Yes. Um, but we are also joined with the lovely, lovely author, Bethany C. Morrow, who is our author for the month of July. Uh, her book, Cherish Farah, knocked us off of our feet <laughs> this book is amazing if you haven't read it stop this podcast go to the store go online whatever you need to do go to your library and get this book immediately it is a game changer um so here's a little info about uh our author bethany c morrow is a national best-selling author writing for adult and young adult audiences. She is the author of the novels Mim, A Song Below Water, A Chorus Rises, and So Many Beginnings, A Little Women Remix. She is the editor slash contributor to the young, and I'm sorry, she is the editor slash contributor to the young adult anthology, Take the Mic, which won the 2020 ILA Social Justice Literature Award. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Forbes, Bustle, BuzzFeed, and more. She is included on USA Today's list of 100 Black novelists and fiction writers you should read. And we concur. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Bethany. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I am wonderful. And I really appreciate you choosing me for July because this is the month that made me. This is my month. So I'm very excited. My birthday is next weekend, I think. Is it in the Happy middle of the week? It's, I believe it's on Wednesday. It's usually on Tuesday or Wednesday, but it's the 20th. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Look at that. We're going to have to turn up for the birthday. For the birthday <laughs> <girl>. <laughs> well, happy early birthday. We are so excited to be celebrating you and this book. Um, but before we get to all of our questions in regards to Cherish Fair, I'm going to pass it off to Denny. Um, what we like to do by putting um, all of our guests in the hot seat and asking 
five wonderful questions. They're totally random. Yes, it comes out, <laughs> out of our out of our brains. But before we continue, like this is the this is like you know when people ask me, so what do you, what do I read if I want to like read something and I'm in a rut? This is my new recommendation oh. to people. Like I infiltrated um, a book club for the library. And I told them, you guys, if you want to read something, because they were asking at the end of like, you know, the powwow, they were like, oh, what are you guys been reading? And I'm like, oh, you guys should check this out. And they're all writing it down. This little old white people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, Bethany C. Morrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but OK, anyway, um, so these are our first uh, first questions are quote unquote hot seat questions. Okay. When was the first time you were allowed to do a sleepover? The one that you remember? Oh gosh. I, I don't even know if I remember my first sleepover and it was probably something to do with church or uh, I went to Christian school. So the, sometimes the church was also the school. Um, I'm sure that's what the situation was. Um, and a lot of times it was like full sibling sleepovers. I have many siblings. It wasn't just like me necessarily going to a friend's house. It was like my family spending the night, uh, at another family's house or something, something not exactly traditional, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same. I, same. <laughs> We were, we were discussing sleepovers earlier today and it was one of those things where was, at first I was like, I've only been to like three. And then I said, I'm really, well, actually there's been more if you count family, but I don't really count but, those. Yes, I do. And like with my son, while he was growing up, my husband at the time and myself, we used to go and like our whole family would spend the night at our uh, church friend's house and stuff. So, I mean, I kept it going. It's... <laughs> Yes. Keeping the tradition alive. My yeah. sleepover was I was I was in high school. I was not allowed to go anywhere. Listen, I was on, I was on lockdowns in 87. You already know how Nicole Turner feels about like, like, like mom, is that you? <laughs> right. So when not writing, what do you do for fun? Um, I mean, all I do, I, I really am the type of person who can apparently only have like one hobby at a time. And um, right now, the whole other side of my brain is taken up with roller skating, um, which I hadn't been doing since I left California, like in the before 2010. Um, the last time I was going skating, I was going with my dad um, and he, you know, to all be an adult night skates uh where it's just it's very black it's very um if you can't like you might not survive okay if you don't know what you're doing um get off the floor uh so and I never got to that level because I'm an extremely like not trying to get hurt person but um but yeah I roller skate a lot I roller skate outside I literally was at the roller rink today with my son Awesome. What's the best bop to roller skate to? Okay, my son and I exclusively roller skate to NCT, which this will be the first time people are hearing me talk about this. I am not trying 
to I'm not trying to hear about anybody else's idols. I'm not trying to like get into conversations about anybody but NCT, okay? We're only talking about NCT. It's 127, it's uh, University or it's, or it's Dream, okay? That's all we're dealing with. I really wish I hadn't even said this publicly because I've literally never talked about this, but that's like exclusively my son and I do, we do NCT and we do skating together. And when we go to the, when you go anywhere else, there's great music. There's a ton of music to skate to. But if I'm at home with my headphones on, it's only NCT. That's it. Mad respect. There we go. <laughs> yes! I am not good, but you know, I'm, I'm Asian, so there <laughs> yeah. we go. It's universal. Yes, music is universal. Absolutely. Um, what was your um, most memorable reader experience so far? Oh, there, no, nope. There's a, cause there's two extremes to that and it's been across multiple books. So um, I will say, <laughs> Just anonymizing it, I will say that you don't ever have to write an eight-page, um, very personal, unsolicited letter where you divulge other people's histories, because um, I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that, and, um, or just, you know, then you have, okay, then you have people who get it so intrinsically that you're like, I need to not be weird with you, like, I need to not... <laughs> like I need to not because I'm like I just want to love you with all my heart and I'm also a stranger to you and I need to I need to remember that but um I mean it's been across you know across a, a, a very broad spectrum of experiences and when it's weird it's real weird and um I wish people this is why I don't talk about idols and stuff because I really don't always I'm not a huge fan of fandom mm. People don't know how to act, and um, we are human people. Please don't tell me you have a parasocial relationship with me because I promise you don't. Um, it's just weird. It's just like don't do that. Like do whatever you want around my content. Do whatever you want around what I've created. But when you spend twenty four ninety nine on a book, do not expect that you bought a piece of me. It's not a Horcrux, okay? Mm -hmm. Like you didn't. You don't now own or are entitled to something personal from the creators and celebrity culture is just deadly. It's terrifying and awful. So <laughs> if that answers your question. <laughs> yes. I'm like, oh, let's drink the tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's hot tonight. Look. <laughs> I, I, I thought I, 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 I said pineapple for you. So <laughs> for, whoever, for whoever that little bit was. <laughs> right. Get a hint. Um, what is your favorite Star Trek episode? Oh my goodness. Of which one? Wait, 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 wait. Are we talking about Discovery? We're talking about Voyager? Are we talking about Next Generation? Like, well, okay. Uh, what if we just start with the classic? Well, we start with the first series and work our way through. So, okay. So, so there are some that I don't have favorites of. Like, I. I'm sure I would have a favorite of like Deep Space Nine, but I didn't watch it as much. Now I really feel like as an adult, I would probably, probably be one of my favorite series is. I know you said starting with the original, but I was like, I don't have a favorite from the very original. Of course, I loved the movies. Um, 
And I grew up watching those, obviously. But then, I mean, Next Generation was a complete game changer. Like, Next Generation just, just the goat, honestly. Um, any episode, genuinely any episode with Guinan is going to be a top, a top episode. Um, Whoopi Goldberg was fully in her bag. Um, I love, I, I recently rewatched the first season of, of The Next Generation and there was some problematic stuff in there. I am not going to lie. There were some, there were some problems. Okay. It's like the second or third episode. And we go to like an all black planet where of course they fall in love with the white instant. And she ends up fighting a black woman to be, to become the Kings. Listen, I was like, episode 12. <laughs> okay. Okay. Y'all wild. Um, okay. Yeah, so there was, I'm not trying to, the thing about Star Trek is what it wants to be and what it hopes to be, and it keeps moving in that direction, but please do not think you're not going to see some problematic stuff. Um, The bad guy's last name was Khan in the, I mean, like, really? Uh, He's he's from outer space, his last name was Khan. Okay. Um, (laughs) It can't be like 7772 asterisk. (laughs) No, no, they were like, we're gonna be, we're gonna just be like super Islamophobic right now. Um, so okay, my favorite, oh gosh, and then my favorite Voyager. There are so many. The cool thing about Voyager and Next Generation is if they wanted to do some just wacky nonsense, they'd be like, oh, there's some sort of like space mist got into our filters and we all had like a simultaneous daydream that is not canon and we'll never deal with this again and I love it because it's messy um and <laughs> <laughs> like I mean the whole the whole like last season the last two seasons I would say of um the most recent two seasons of Discovery to me is like okay this is what Star this is what Star Trek should be like it was they're doing so much work that really we haven't seen on Star Trek before, honestly, like continuous story arcs having to do with the impact and consequences that we really have never seen. Because remember, Voyager is lost, mm-hmm. okay? Like for a long time. And they're like, <laughs> like this, this, doesn't, this doesn't have any impact on my mental health. Like, <laughs> like, like what are you talking about? Um, so, so discovery to me, and we did the whole mirror universe. I just love any time we can just have the same characters get to play evil versions of themselves. Like I love it. Um, but, but I really love honestly the work that they're doing in mental health and taking care of the entire crew and what connection means and what sacrifice costs and how long that impact ripples out. I'm like, this is okay. This is, this is doing something that we have not that we have not done while still being light in different places and stuff. So I didn't say a specific episode for anything. You're welcome. <laughs> you like the series as a whole, which we can yes. see your love uh, for, for all things Star Trek. Oh, yeah. 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 And um, you, I feel like definitely touch on the the fantasy and the make-believe and everything that goes into the world of fiction so well um and so we were just wondering you know this is not your your first novel uh mm-hmm. you have written many how did this particular story come to you 
So the concept, then this happens a lot of times where the first thing that comes to me is the concept. Now, sometimes the concept is the story, as in the case of um, Mem and A Song Below Water, which is as soon as I say, my voice is power and that's a black girl siren and only black girls are sirens. That is the story that that's the story in encapsulated in the concept, right? In this case, the concept was more the reveal. And so that was the first thing that came to me because it was something that, um, it was something that I was familiar with from childhood that I was always like, that is weird. We're not going to deal with how weird this is. I don't know if we're doing spoilers, we can. Okay, so if we're, because that's otherwise I'm be real ambiguous right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so spoiler, um, you know, the first thing that came to me was the whipping boy. And I remember being really, I'm super out of focus. Um, I remember being really interested and intrigued by that concept. And again, being in very small Christian schools, uh, almost like homeschool at at the church or something um you know we they and you realize how much of it is like uh wrapped up in white supremacy and stuff because that's for some reason that sort of story or content is something that I distinctly remember being introduced to as something that we were reading in class and um it was really it was really like it just stuck in my brain as a child. I was like, there are so many flaws with this. Like, aside from the fact that it's just sadistic, it's just like downright evil. This only works if the child in question, the, the, the child that has the whipping child is not the center of an entire ruling, like governing party, like a, an entire system of sovereignty. Because if they are, that's a level of privilege that is not going to be, you're not even going to let the, the, the whipping child get close enough to that person for their pain to matter to this, to this prince, you know. And so it, it always stuck with me because I was like, this is pointless violence. This is pointless abuse. This is just further subjugation of a subjugated person in this, in this realm. Um, and so when my agent was like, I think it'd be really interesting to see something along the lines of like, of a, of a get out sort of concept with you. And when I think get out, of course, I think the clandestine terrorization, um, that to me is, is, the, is the point and sort of the, the center of get out is this clandestine form of terrorization by liberal progressive white Americans. Um, and it's very much who the antagonist was in A Song Below Water. Um, it's always about, you know, I, I don't have to tell you how violent and deadly um, a, a, an overtly bigoted and, and uh, violent person is. I don't have to show you that. They're going to show you for themselves. The person, especially as a West Coast raised Black woman, the person that I have to be afraid for or afraid of is the person who thinks they're better than they are. Mm -hmm. The person who thinks I owe them some gratitude. Like though that sort of terrorization, that sort of um, constant, pervasive, very, very subtle. Um, and especially because the whole rest of the country, particularly places that are used to more overt terrorization are also joining in the chorus, telling us that we're not experiencing this. 
Right. And that nothing is, well, it's better than if you were in the South. No, if I were in the South, I'd be around more Black people, first of all. So like, there's something to be said for community, okay? Like, Mm -hmm. we're talking about being in primarily white settings and having these people say the right words, use the right language, and also be shocked when somebody you thought was your friend did something. Um, now that only happened, I'm going to be real, that only happened until the end of elementary school. And you didn't surprise me again after that, just because I was like, I don't trust you. Like, why would I prove? That's when it became like, oh, this whole nice thing, you need to prove. I don't have to extend confidence when my life and my mental health and my safety are on the line. You have to prove to me that you are these things that you claim you are. Right. So it very much is, it was about like that clandestine aspect of, of being terrorized, of being constantly terrorized. Um, but the story of Cherish Farah to me, because anytime you do something that's clandestine, there has to be something else that you think is the story first, right? So it's like, what is the story about before you know what the story is about? And that story is about Farah. That story is about a black girl who is a budding psychopath. And for me, that story is people breaking their backs gymnastically to not see her as even capable. The number of people who are like, I just thought she was spoiled. I'm like, for true? All the way through the book, you just thought she was spoiled? Do you bite off tongues? Because if you do, like... That's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole nother conversation, baby. But I'm like, you know, there's a dehumanization that reduces... um, Black girls and, and just Black people and non-white people to always being the result of what has happened to them. They have nothing intrinsic. They have nothing that is, they are the source of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it don't matter what planet you had put me on, this is who I was about to be. Um, there, you know, we're not capable of that. We are always, our whole personality, our whole identities are supposed to be in response to, and all that does, of course, is center whiteness as being supreme, as being the authority, even in our creation, even in our personality creation. So the story for me was how long can the reader refuse to acknowledge who Farah is? Mm. And it's a long time. <laughs> yes. But if you're paying attention, you might have some oh. thrown your way oh. to catch. I mean, I thought she tells you on the first page what she's going to do. Yes. Yes. She's going to burn it all down. And they were like, okay. I was so scared of her. Like, (laughs) in my mind, like, what are you, what are you going to do to me? Like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, why is everybody worried about everybody else? I'm like, why? Like this girl, like you're going to find yourself in a room and this girl would be like, you're finished today. Look, she wasn't even to listen. The type of person Farrah is, by the time she tells you you're in trouble. It's too late. It's too late. Um, But then at the same time, like, of course she has, of course she's still a Black girl. Of course she, the same, the things that she says about Cherish are also true of herself. Of course, no matter what, she's still a Black girl. Of course, somebody else is still hurting her. And that gets into why is there a right way to be a victim of violence, of constant oppression? Like, why is there, you know, it's like, if, can I believe that something is happening to her if I do recognize that she's 
that she's a problem. If I do recognize something's wrong with her, does that preclude her from, from being a victim of something? Um, so it's like, if you're looking for, if you're looking for antagonists, I mean, I stopped the book with them. You, you really shouldn't be having any trouble finding antagonists. You just have to be able to accept that there's more than one, uh, you know, more than one thing could be true at one time. That is a, what you did with this book is, is extremely powerful on how you laid out all of the characters and especially that detail of figuring out who, I always are, I'm on like a search of who is the true villain? Because there's mm-hmm. this idea of what they think that the, the villain is. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I like to say, like in Lion King, people think that it's Scar. Mm-hmm. When in actuality, to me, I feel like it's Simba. Simba, if Simba didn't do- Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Are we, just, we're just about to, are we about to vibe this hard? Wait a minute. <laughs> it has always been for me. Simba should have stayed his ass where his people told him to stay. Otherwise, his daddy wouldn't have been dead. But then also he just can't take accountability. Mind. But also just can't even take accountability. Let's, let's, pretend, let's, pre- let's pretend that what Scar told you is true. You, you don't have to tell your mama. Come on. You don't got you don't got you don't offer you don't offer nothing. <laughs> I mean, and that's why you lost 20 years of your life. Have fun. Anyway, I'm just no, for <laughs> real. You just wait to be unless I get in trouble, in which case I'm gonna run away. Like his Moses ass. I like running into the wilderness and hiding. Come on now. I can't. And then, that, I, and then on top of that with Nala who is like, oh, I really love this boy. And I'm like, red flag, red <laughs> flag. Listen, somebody recently, somebody recently did a gif of that look she does when they've been that, you know, the, can you feel the love tonight? And I remember as a child, cause I was in the theater when I saw that movie for the first time. And when she does that, like, I was like, check, I cannot, this, sexual ass movie like what are we she was ready she found him she found him after all this time she found him eating good in the neighborhood okay she found him with plenty of water she found him with companions she's out here hunting outside of the pride lands because of how scarce food is she finds him in this perfect state where he has just like run away and she's like you can still get it? No. <laughs> no. No. I got questions, Simba. I got questions. Yes. So what you've done in this book is you've set up these red flags all over the place. And littered. Littered. My, my condolences to anybody who don't see those red flags. Now <laughs> of this book, right? <laughs> well, it's like how powerless, and you know, this is a theme I think with all of my with every single book I write because every single book I write is about a black girl or black woman. How long are you going to assume me powerless? Hmm. That's literally every single every single one of my books. You, you can ask that question. How long are you going to assume me powerless? Now, is everybody? Are you going to get the same consequences every single time? Of course not. But it's always a question of we're either the villain or we are only the victim. We are only capable of being the victim. There is no power to be had here. There is no, you know, and it's like, we know you don't believe that because you're always looking at us to be your nurse me, to be your, to, to fly your battered Uncle Sam to to freedom after Amanda Gorman is an 18-year-old poet 
who stands in front of the world and does something so brave and the very next thing they say, because we can't, you can't just say I'm proud and I let's, let's actually sit with what she's actually done. You've got to give it an impossible standard, an impossible next task, because of course we won't be able to live up to that. You got to find some way to pretend you're celebrating us, but at the same time, you're setting us up for failure because now, okay, well then you got to be a superwoman. I can't, I can't see you as just a fully fleshed out person. I can't see it was just a powerful self, you know, self-empowered person. It's either you are a monster or, okay, well then save everybody. Right. Come on. So social horror is found in media and literature. It ha- and that's been on the rise, especially since the arrival of Jordan, Jordan Peele's Get Out mm-hmm. and Us. What is, what is about this genre that you found appealing to take this style as your own? Yeah, I absolutely, my first thing is always the same way when people ask me about writing fantasy and science fiction as a Black person, I always say that I'm following in a grand tradition. I am far from from the first or even among the first. This is something that Black creatives have paved um, the way and shown us how to take the fantastical to elevate a truth to tell the truth um our world building is spectacular because we are constantly having to literally tell the truth to people who are living in the same world with us who have been raised to be so out of touch um and so unaware um intentionally of course so that they can be innocent you know and and complicit but it's definitely something that I didn't feel like I had to make my own. I felt like it's been, it's been made for me. It's a tool given to me, um, passed down, constantly passed down, still being passed down um, from Black creative to Black creative. And for me, what's so important about it is that a lot of times horror and a lot of people who love horror talk about how horror is, is therapeutic and, and how it's meant to allow us to do things. But a lot of it, you know, we, we, we began to sensationalize horror too. And I don't see the purpose of a lot of things that honestly just look like stylizing violence. Um, that for me is not therapeutic. And so I have, I've usually said I don't like horror, but then when I think about the kinds of things that I would watch like by myself or, or things that I really, really loved, it was like People Under the Stairs and um, Tales from the Hood and a lot of stuff that was like, oh, okay, I need for it to be telling something about the real world that I actually live in. And especially where Black people are concerned, it needs to be telling a truth Um, and telling the terrifying truth of it and demonstrating that this is something horrific that is happening to us, not not us experiencing horrific things on screen for the benefit of other people, like a televised lynching, like you guys have done that. And that's not horror to you. That's only horror to us. Social horror allows me to force you to acknowledge the horror that is being done to me in order for you to engage in this. And I keep giving this example because I I think that it's, I think that it was absolutely the perfect example for what social horror is to me. The last scare that I remember in Get Out um, are police lights. Oh, yes. And the reason that that is so important, the reason that that is so powerful is because it came out in a time when we're literally still debating whether or not police are actually doing the thing we're watching them do, which is just 
unmitigated murder and, and execution of Black people between the ages of 12 and everything. So when you have a movie come out in a theater with the majority of America watching and the very last way to scare them is to have the protagonist, a Black man, sitting over a dying white woman and seeing police lights, if everybody gasps, they all acknowledge that they know what the fuck you're talking about. Sorry, I hope this isn't PG-13. Um, Vulgar geniuses. It's for they, Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so if every so if everybody if everybody experienced that scare, they just told on themselves. Mm-hmm. Then there's no question that you understand state violence. You understand the threat of state violence against black men. You understand that it doesn't matter what the reality is, and you know the truth of this situation, and you also know how it looks, and you know that that's what matters. And you know this person can come and take his life, and that can be the end of the movie. The fact that everyone understood that that was a scare told on them that's what matters about social horror it can force the audience to give up the delusion stop lying you know exactly what i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh this book this book is written in first person and it is the first time that i've read a story written in this manner where the narrator was aware of the things that she would eventually reveal to the reader and there was also there was also us being in the dark about it, um, but never did she stop being calculated in the manner in which she moved through the story. What was it to exist in the mind of Farah as she told you who she was and what she had planned to do to this family? So the thing is that what she decides to do to the family evolves moment by moment based on what she finally is forced to realize so she is the smartest person in the room like every psychopath and yet of course she is unaware of what they are doing she's aware of some things and then she's completely unaware of other things but it does not occur to her that she could be unaware of something so she is going that's why she, you know, I, I had to create literally a, like a, um, a graphic for myself that tells me what everyone knows and why they can't see what they're not seeing, because that has to be consistent and fully developed in their, in their personalities. Because if anything about that was kind of like, well, they could not know this, but they could have also, then it would, then it doesn't work. The only way it works is if you craft people who have such a clear psychosis and such a clear personality and such a clear mindset and such a clear objective that it is 100% believable that you do not see what you do not see. Mm-hmm. The Whitmans don't see something. Cherish doesn't see a lot. Uh, Farrah doesn't see a lot of things. And the only person who without, now the thing about, I wanted to talk about the wisdom of black women Nicole Turner doesn't know what she's seeing. She just knows she's seeing it. And she is a wiser, she is a Black woman being raised who has been raised in this country. I don't have to wait. Listen, if three Black people run past me, I'm running. Okay, I'm not, I'm not stopping to interview people and try to ascertain what they're running from. I know what danger looks like, right? And so there's this, and that's one of the issues with Farah, um, not having 
not always tapping into what it is to be a black girl and sometimes really just tapping into the fact that she's a psychopath is that she's missing the survival instinct that says I don't have to be sure I don't have to like I don't have to believe that I know everything I I need to self-preserve right so just like what we see her do to Tariq is something that she decides to do in the moment. And the, the reason she decides to do it is because she realizes that he got over on her. Like he fooled her, right? As soon as she knows that a consequence is forthcoming today, right now. And that is the same time that she decides what has to be done. Now, the scary part is how well she plans and executes a plan that she pretty much makes that same night. Because from that point, everything has to happen, right? There's no, there's no slowing down from this point. Everything's about to come undone because of what she does to Tariq. So it's like, okay, everything has to happen now. So the fact that she can devise exactly, I mean, and that's, that is chess, right? Because it's like, everybody has to end up in a, in a literal physical spot for this to happen. Um, and I have to believe that I have already won the war with them over cherish like I have to fully believe in this relationship that we have been defending and fighting over and all that I have to truly 100% believe that I've done what I set out to do with her in order for this all to work um but you know I knew I knew certain things that were going to happen at the end but Farrah didn't know I just needed I needed it to I needed it to be consistent with what kind of consequence she would lay down if somebody really fooled her. If somebody really proved to have outsmarted her, what is she going to do? But she told you at the beginning, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every everybody, everything's burning. Like, yes. the ground, <laughs> down to the ground, she took it. <laughs> <laughs> Like that that last scene, and I'm just like, ah. like my favorite, honestly, my favorite part of that last scene is who really does it, um, because that's winning. That's winning. Uh, I was like, this is a happy. I told people like, okay, this is okay. Yes, there's an aspect of it that is like in the vein of Get Out, but also, um, this is a happily ever after, guys, and I meant that. Uh, because she's going back to that house. Mm-hmm. She owns that house now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. She she was like, let me prove to you that it's gonna be mine. Yes, it's not that Eric is mine. And now you're gonna protect me. Because mm-hmm. I know like, about it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tell us uh, this power struggle between Fair and basically every character in, in, in this story, like you said, being a calculated game of chess. And how does it kind of also relate to this double consciousness that Black people ha- have to do or have to navigate in the world just to exist? Right. And, and what, what you were asking before about what's it like to be in Farrah's mind, now because you know, people are always asking, how do you, how do you balance? When I wrote Men, it was like, how do you, how do you balance, like, you know, being a woman and like having the story be about her being a woman and also her being a black woman. I was like, I don't balance those things. I embody them. What are you talking about? Like, I'm a person. Um, So that's always a really 
that's always the kind of the kind of question uh, that I get. That I mean, obviously, more so from from white readers and and critics. But the reason that's so interesting to me about this particular book is I'm like I embody usually when I'm writing about a Black American girl, I embody that double consciousness, that double bind, right? But Farah is like unrelenting. Like her calculations are so outside of what's necessary. Or I mean, I guess she she ends up being the exact right person for this to happen to, but still like <laughs> in normal circumstances, okay, her, her level of, um, her level of calculation is completely exhausting. And it's, it's simultaneously difficult to, to wield, but it's easy to write. The reason it's easy to write is because you can't, you, you can't get her, you, you can't pull back on her. If you, if you pull back on her at any point, you completely break the spell, right? She has to be completely overwhelming, completely all-encompassing. It's the claustrophobic relationship that the reader has to have with Farah because you have to not always be sure, like, is it me or is it like not this is not happening like it's not this serious you know so you, she she has to stay she has to stay that constant all the way through the book so it's easy to write it because it's really easy to tell if you're easing up it's very easy to tell because she is unrelenting but also it's exhausting like she is exhausting um <laughs> being in her mind is exhausting because you have to, even when you know it's not necessary, you have to turn every single interaction over six times. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Even, even when, even when it's, it's cherished or somebody, you've got to, you've got to look at it from six different directions and you got to find, you got to find a weak spot. Mm-hmm. Even if none of that is warranted. Right. You still got to do it, right? Um, so it's exhausting. It's exhausting being being in Farrah's head. But it's also, like I said, it's also very freeing because you have to stay that consistent. Mm. Yeah, and, and as a reader, you kind of felt it. Like, you know, like as as you would read the book, you would feel that pressure almost mm-hmm. and that like claustrophobic sense of like, are you like orbiting me at some point now? No, for real, like... <laughs> And are you like trying to like, are you watching me kind of thing? You know, it's like, and if you don't see that as a reader, and I think you're missing the point of the whole story, mm-hmm. it was like, it was very intentional and you really put a lot of thought and like a lot of direction towards that feeling. Like, yes. Like it, you had to feel it to understand where Farah and where Cherish kind of lies in this story. Mm. Yes, and especially to understand because what you're experiencing is what Cherish experiences. Absolutely. That's, that's what this whole relationship has been like. All she can remember is the moment of seeing and feeling seen by Farah and that romantic view and that which again is a is a product of white supremacy and is a product of of you know being in these it creating these lily white unnaturally white fantastically white spaces that just the presence of this other black girl she didn't have a chance to say who is this person she didn't have a chance to say is this a normal person is this somebody I want to be friends with this is the only other 
black girl. This is going to be my kin, period, because you've created a world where I need that. And it's also in very short supply, right? So I want the reader to experience how overbearing, how claustrophobic, how intense Farah's attention is. And the interesting thing being, if you're white girl spoiled and your parents have been giving you the same amount, the same type or the same intensity rather of coddling and constant infantilization and everything, you wouldn't necessarily see why this is a huge red flag. <laughs> like this is, this is the kind of unfettered attention, completely direct attention that you were, that you're accustomed to, right? So there is a lot of reasons that Farrah, I mean, Cherish just like stood zero chance whatsoever, but it's really important for the, for the reader when you feel exhausted of Farrah to be like, oh yeah, no, Cherish is smothered. Cherish can't read. Like, yes. And it has to be that, that way again for the last scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in your novel, there is a discussion of plans that happens when Farrah's mother is informing Brienne Whitman that she would be taking Farrah to their new home after her husband has found a new job. And there is this over ever so quiet but loud statement that centers around race. And Farrah makes this observation. Uh, she says that Miss Whitman is raising a Black daughter, but she's never been a Black woman. There is no class for that. She's echoing my mother's very personally experienced concerns, but when Brienne Whitman talks about unequal pay, she means between herself and white men. I doubt she's ever seen the salary disparities that favor her. She has no idea what it costs for women like my mother to lean in. Will you talk to us about how this relates to liberation not being fully actualized until all oppressed people are liberated? Well, yeah, the first thing that we have to do is, again, stop the infantilization of white women and stop saying things like, oh, they're foot soldiers in white supremacy. Like, ma'am, they're generals, okay? Well, no, absolutely not. Like, the anytime you buy into the innocence of white women, you realize that you are borrowing from the white supremacist playbook, okay? Um, we are supposed to believe that they are capable of this type of you know, delusional, uh, completely out of touch, completely incredulous, like impossible to, to really observe the things that we just expect women of color can observe. But for some reason, when it's white women, we're supposed to believe that like, well, she doesn't see it and she didn't know. No, your suffragettes were racist bigots who didn't want black women to vote. They just wanted to be able to vote. They are always aligning with whiteness before womanness. We have to accept that so that we stop allowing conversations about women to be coded white. Mm. Because you'll say women only make such and such. And it's always, they're always telling you what white women make. I'm like, oh, keep going, babe. We don't make that. Mm-hmm, right. She makes that. We don't make that. So why, why is the conversation never talking about us? We have to, <laughs> unfortunately, and this is not our doing, this is not my doing, but I tend to believe that the only way to liberation is to stop trying to include white womanness in it. How, how can I do that when she is benefiting from white supremacy and we're not correcting for that 
and therefore the standard, she becomes the standard. So I'm supposed to judge freedom by somebody who's literally, her name's on the deed. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I don't, and that's not to say that it's impossible. Now, of course, anytime I'm talking about whiteness including white womenness, I'm talking about institutions because we have to acknowledge that, that that is an institution too. You can't just say white men and old white men, like that's the institution. White women are a part of the institution. So of course, individual people, can be involved in liberation and be involved in equity and equality and and all of that. Individual people, okay? But as a whole, we need to stop pretending that we can look at statistics and and, uh, or or, um, immediately align ourselves with groups of white women who are fighting for something as though they're fighting for anybody else. Time and time again, like how many times you gotta burn me? Come on. I know with, especially within the last, uh, five six years this this is something that has been heavy on a lot of the hearts of people who are doing and have been doing this work of liberation in regards to you know all of us getting where we need to get right mm-hmm. and it, it makes it so difficult when that is not included into the narrative and in right and, uh recently like just yesterday um there's a post that's going around i cannot remember the young ladies uh name at the moment but uh she was in um a a meeting with the congressperson talking about women and being who what is a woman Mm -hmm. and can women have children right for having to define all of these things to this congressman who is trying so hard to be transphobic right in the middle of this conversation and you know there is the separation that we see that's happening in order for someone to take hold and say, okay, this is where I want my group of people to be mm-hmm. in order to, for that to happen. I have to create this narrative that there's nothing else other than this definition. Right. right. And so what we see within that, in your book that you have between with her, with uh, Cherish's parents and with um, uh, Tariq's mm-hmm. uh, parent what they have created is wanting to make that separation in order for them to get out whatever white supremacist ideal frustration that they think that they have that they need to relent onto these onto these children, um, especially with Farah who has no clue but is later on you know she learns about it um, goes to show like this is that narrative that we are dealing with and how society wants to make black people and Latina people and uh, indigenous people they're whipping boy and girl yeah and I you this book I swear I think it needs to be taught in like sociology classes like every everywhere like this as a as a student of sociology I would absolutely concur with you um (laughs) no I'm serious and I and I tweeted about it I, I said you know a lot of people are reading for today, and I'm not writing for today. Um, We can't afford to keep writing for today. I can't afford to sit in front of a congressman who is intentionally um, playing stupid, who is intentionally playing uh, obtuse, and, and let me start it, and forcing me to have this conversation where I define the most easily understood terms, where we waste time having to talk about stuff that does not need to be talked about anymore. You need to accept when someone is being hateful and leave them where they are. 
This is not, now, unfortunately, these are people who are in positions of power. So there's a reason, obviously, there's a reason for, for what the professor was doing and what the professor, professor was saying. But if you watch that clip within a couple of seconds of her absolutely eviscerating his attempt at being transphobic, he immediately, now it turns into decorum. Now it's about, now we're going to police how you're talking. Is this how you would talk to your, do you not let your students disagree with you? And I'm like, conflating and this is why we have to push against I have a, I have a book is it in here just really quickly um I have a book that I just got that's called against civility the hidden racism in our obsession with civility mm -hmm. and one of the things that I've constantly been returning to is this um we have allowed the wrong side to set the terms, not just the terms, but the actual like definition of conversation and discourse. We have decided that everything is, is, is supposed to be up for debate and that there's a decorum and that there's a, and I wanna remind everybody that this is the same country, one of the many countries that allowed dueling, okay? There was a proper and very like elegant way to shoot somebody to death in the morning, please, please stop misunderstanding what the point of what they're doing is, okay? So he completely derails the conversation as soon as she breaks down his first, his first line of defense, he immediately pivots to critiquing whether this is, do you allow your students to talk? And I would have been like, cause I'm not falling for that. Absolutely, I do not allow my students to derail conversations. I do not conflate uh, petulance with, with good faith discussion. Absolutely not. My classroom is not a place for everybody to just say whatever the fuck is on their mind, no matter whether they're trying to stop us from having progressive conversations or not. No, I don't allow that. But instead, we get into uh, arguing that like, well, of course I listen to my students. I don't have to prove that to you. I don't have to listen to you. You do not have anything worth hearing. Mm -hmm. What you were doing is 100% violence. I don't have to create a safe space for you to do it. I don't have to give you equal time to do that. Uh, so my work is never, I'm never trying to answer today's discourse mm. because you guys are intentionally, intentionally pretending not to understand something. I'm going to, uh, that's what I love about social horror. I'm going to talk to you like you know what the fuck I'm talking about. And maybe that means you're not going to understand this book for 10 years. That is not my problem. Oh, nope. 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 <laughs> talk to your mom about that. <laughs> <laughs> Ask a real adult about it. <laughs> I mean, listen, speak an adult, please. So Cherish is what Pharaoh, like you said, calls white girl spoiled. Since she was adopted and brought up by these affluent white parents, white people can have sometimes this complex called the white savior complex in which they think they're helping black, indigenous, and people of color, but sometimes they're really not, i.e. Kelly and Farah, you know, as your examples, why mm -hmm. did you choose to illustrate this complex in such a chilling and unexpected way? Um, if you read A Song Below Water, when I first wrote that book, I was writing that book in 2017, I believe, maybe 2016, and Devante Hart had uh, been, um, he had gone viral, this little black boy in Portland had gone viral for this picture of him sobbing, hugging a police officer at a protest, holding a sign that said free hugs. And my immediate response to that was anger. 
And I knew that a white person was responsible for that. And a lot of black people on Twitter immediately saw that picture and were upset. And there was such a huge divide in the reaction to that picture going viral. White people could not get enough of it. Portland, of course, was claiming it and was like, oh, we're so, this is what Portland is like. And I'm like, a black boy sobbing as he hugs a police officer, that's what you're about? Why is only one of them sobbing? Nobody thought to ask that question. Why is the boy sobbing in the first place? Mm -hmm. Did you think he was that moved by being hugged by a police officer? For why? Why would that be? Why would he be sobbing like this? Nobody had these kind of questions except for black people. So I wrote about Devontae Hart in my first draft of um, A Song Below Water. And by the time that book got to copy edits, which is later, you know, in the stages of the editorial process before a book is published, but it means it was also a couple of years after I'd written it, um, he was presumed dead because his white adoptive moms had driven their minivan over the side of a cliff, killing him and his five also black siblings. And I remember my publisher asking me if I wanted to take the mention of him out of the book because it was breaking news that that he was presumed dead and I was like absolutely not because when we saw that picture we were all concerned mm -hmm. hmm. and when you guys saw that picture you thought it was the world becoming a better place because a black boy was crying hmm zero interrogation right so and this is a common you know I am not an adoptee and I think a lot of people would assume oh well then you know this is kind of outside of your lane um first of all absolutely not because this did not begin with traditional adoption this has been happening ever since we were kidnapped and brought to this land and it happened over and over again in this land, in doing the research for So Many Beginnings, which is my Little Women remix that's set in 1863, North Carolina on the Roanoke Island Free People's Colony, um, which also does the work of, uh, you know, debunking the myth of white, the good white person and the good abolitionist and all of these people who were not pro-Black they, they might have been anti-slavery, but they were not pro-Black. And in reading Time Full of Trial by Patricia C. Click, which was the, the majority of the lion's share of my uh, research for so many beginnings, I was reading the um, accounts of these white missionary teachers who would come down to the Roanoke Island Free People's Colony, um, several of whom had, quote unquote, taken home uh, one of the children. just went to a free people colony and just decided, well, this one belongs to me now. Mm. And, you know, put them in their clothes, but still had them, these are children, right? Still had the girl doing laundry and cooking and doing servitude, okay? And I'm assuming she didn't get a choice, so let's just call it slavery. Mm -hmm. um, she wasn't being paid. Um, this is something that is 
not modern. This is not a modern invention. And so it doesn't matter what anybody's relationship, what a, what a Black American's relationship to um, personal experience with, with adoption is in the modern world. I'm talking about this intentional, pervasive, consistent, constant, repeated plucking, taking your little, taking your little pickaninny and just claiming ownership of us, just taking us from our family, just taking us and always assuming that it's for our own good, always assuming. And if you read, you can read the accounts of these people, uh, particularly ones that I'm talking about in this research for so many beginnings, you can read their, these accounts. They're so proud of themselves. And they, they're so convinced that the, that the black child is so much happier and is so much better off. There's just this inherent, it has to come from a place of white supremacy. It has to come from a place of dehumanizing the black person, but also vastly, vastly, vastly overestimating your ability and your capacity as a person and, and, and your humanity as a person that it, you didn't get tripped up by separating them from their family because your assumption was that your family would be enough. You're always enough. You're always more than enough for us. There's never an account for what are they missing? What am I taking from them? What am I taking them away from? None of that is ever is ever taken into account. So to me, it's an ongoing, it's an absolutely ongoing and still to this day, now today they're just using modern adoption. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will be like, oh, are you saying that I'm saying there should be a moratorium on on uh, white families adopting children of color in a country where you can't decide if you believe what you're seeing. You, you don't you don't know if racism is real. You don't know if dehumanization is real. You don't know if oppression is real, but I'm supposed to entrust our babies to you. And that's not supposed to be an, a daily violence. I'm supposed to just assume that that's going to go well because we're all using gentle talk now. Like, absolutely not. There is a cost for this. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a part of a much bigger picture. And that to me is, Devante Hart was like uh, just a fault line for me. Mm. This, this makes me think about I, I used to work in, in a high school and uh, there was a particular person that worked there who was in the habit of adopting the black boys who played football and having them come and stay at her house. Oh, okay. Because you knew that, that they were going to go places. And this is something that mm-hmm. is often seen Mm-hmm. And there's a whole movie, uh, what yeah. is called Right Side or whatever, yeah. with Sandra Bullock. Yeah. This, as well as a documentary, the Cheer documentary that was on Netflix. And, and you see these boys, these Black boys being taken into these homes who have the potential of possibly bringing home money. But that's the exact same thing that happens with uh, girls' gymnastics. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Black girls, in, black girls in gymnastics. Show me one of them that lived with their family the whole time they were training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is it is disheartening whenever I see those things because you know that the intention is not pure and that it is all for a whole nother reason. And 
the media like to make it seem as if it is like it's a heartwarming story it's a heartwarming story and the thing is and the reason that you know that this is grounded in white supremacy is because if i say something like there should be a moratorium on white people adopting non-white children in the united states people would act like that was an unacceptable thing to say they'd have so much to say about it why because we're supposed to talk about we're supposed to give confidence to the hypothetical goodness that they could be doing rather than the proven and provable and discernible and observable ill, there's always like the the potential for white goodness outweighs the actual scars and the actual wake of tragedy. And we're supposed to always give confidence. And I'm like, sit with that, okay? Rest with that. The reason it's not gonna stop me from saying anything is because I don't operate like that. I don't have to give you the benefit of the doubt. Why would I give you the benefit of the doubt of what good you might do versus what ill has constantly been done. At what point do we begin actually protecting the oppressed, the marginalized, the the vulnerable? Why would I not start there? Mm -hmm. Instead of arguing with me about hypothetical good outcomes. It's pointless. Mm -hmm. Those are the the questions that we don't have the answers to. Yes. But we do know the answers to the questions. Look, look, look. <laughs> that's, that's why they're rhetorical. And it's why I don't, that's why I don't suffer fools. I'm not going to get in conversations with people who pretend, bad faith actors who pretend that they don't understand what I'm talking about. If you truly don't understand, then it would be beneath me to break this down to such an elementary level that I could introduce you to the topic. Go get educated and then come back. But nobody's willing to do that though. Hence. Oh, come on. Hence. That's asking for too much. Right. <laughs> I think sometimes when reading your novel, it, it suggests to the reader to question who gets to be afraid in America. Mm. Our first introduction to this is when Farrah is talking about her mother being adamant about not allowing her to go to a sleepover at someone else's home. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is seen often within Black families as well as other people of color. And this moment, which Farah talks about having to convince her mother to allow her to stay as Cherish's home, feels like what it it sets up the the fear factor of what evil things could happen to Black bodies, especially when those bodies belong to Black girls. Mm-hmm. Was that what you were doing within that particular moment of of that of that book? What I'm intentionally doing is using something that even those of us who experienced it will agree is like an overreach. Okay, what's what's going to happen? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Why can't I go? The whole point is our fears do not come from the ether. Mm-hmm. Our fears don't even come from our imagination. Our fears come from history. Our fears come from real events, right? So what's really funny is like my my childhood best friend um, is a, she, her family is black and indigenous. They come from, um, South Carolina, um, a Lakota Sioux, uh, reservation in South Carolina and her family in particular, it was like, not only were we allowed to have, have sleepovers, we were allowed to have sleepovers sometimes during the school week. And as a kid, having not, having everything have been so, I mean, it's like, you know, the sun comes up and it's time to go home. Meanwhile, all the white kids are like 
still sleep and going to have a late brunch and going to go swimming and all this different stuff. And it's like, nope, sun came up, time to go home. Um, but with, but with my girlfriend's family, it was like, our families were just interchangeable. Like she was, she was just allowed to come, you know, for a week at a time and vice versa. And it just made sense to me. I didn't, I guess I didn't put too much thought into it. It was just like, yeah, you, you know, you have equal reason um, to be terrified. And these are not the people you're terrified of. So, <laughs> like, you know, so there was no, there was never, there was never any question. We went to the same elementary school for a couple of years. And so we were, we could sleep over even during the week sometimes. And it was just not a big deal. And it was such a huge, such a huge uh, diversion for what I was accustomed to. But the thing that Farah is doing a couple of times in the book is a, is being aware that her mother has a valid stance, but also being aware of what it's like to live in a primarily white setting, which is that you're being gaslit all the time. Mm-hmm. And she's putting her mother in a position where her mother would have to say out loud what she's afraid of. Mm-hmm. And knowing that that is an unreasonable thing to do, even though your fears are based on fact, even though it's like when somebody's like, are you saying this is about race? <laughs> and, it's like, and it's like, well, I didn't put a white only sign on fucking drinking fountains. So uh, yes, I'm saying that you guys do things based on race. Absolutely. You made up Jim Crow, dude. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, but that kind of question is I'm asking you something that your position is completely reasonable about, but I'm asking you in such a way as to immediately alert you to the fact that this is a bad faith question and that I am intentionally undermining your confidence, not in your position necessarily, but in its reception if you were to vocalize it. So one of the reasons that we should know sort of early on that Farah is one of the antagonists is because she does that to her mom multiple times. Kind of teared up at the, when you were saying that our fear is not coming out of the ether because so many people choose not to see it. They choose not to see it. They choose to pretend they don't see it. Mm-hmm. No, nobody's not seeing it, right? How many, how many times did they shoot that young man in Ohio? First I heard 60, then it went to 90. They shot 90 times, 60 of them hit him. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I could write that would be as ludicrous, as heinous, as cartoonish, as pulling somebody over, quote unquote, for a traffic violation and anything happening in that that results in a young man being shot 60 times. There's the level of ludicrousness that I would have to reach for in fiction. And we're talking about something that is widely known. Mm-hmm. How do you keep separating all of these instances? How many times can something happen? It's not, oh, they people don't know or can even pretend not to know. You're, you're saturated in it. You're saturated in it. You see it just, you have eyes and ears just like I do. 
you hear about it on an almost daily basis right now for years. So you have to accept the intentionality of somebody living in the exact same world you live in, hearing the exact same news that you hear and deciding to say blue lives matter mm. and deciding to say, we have to wait to hear both sides. Is that how bullets work? Mm-mm. Do it's bullets it's care what the others are like? <laughs> you know, so it's, we, I don't, I don't go in for the great delusion. I don't, I don't pretend that it's possible that somebody could live in the same. People will say, and I've had white people say this to me during interviews and stuff. Well, I, you know, I grew up in a small town and, and I didn't, you know, meet another black person um, until I went off to college. And I said, did you own a television? <laughs> because if you owned a television, then you knew that your town was fantastical. Mm. You knew that your experience was curated. Mm. This was done intentionally. You created this space. Anybody in the United States of America or Canada who is expecting me to believe that because they didn't have a personal proximity to a Black person, that they were just completely unaware. Oh, so you didn't hear about Rodney King? Mm-hmm. You didn't know about the LA riots? You didn't know about any of that stuff? That was, you don't get the news where you live. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, absolutely not. There, we, have to, we have to accept, well, again, we've, we've all been bred to accept this sort of infantilization of whiteness, this, um, you know, this uh, assumption of ignorance, which is just code for innocence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's like no they live on the same planet you do right you're not get, there's not some secret black person who's knocking on your door every night to relay the news to you you're not getting it firsthand you're getting it from the media you're getting it from the internet you're getting it from the same places they have access to so if they don't know it's because they've created blind spots that's intention mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we know you've released a book, at least one book since 2018. And, you know, is there any other storyline that you haven't explored yet? What else, you know, can we, (laughs) leaders, (laughs) you know, are be able to like um, absorb? I am, (laughs) I am, I am, I will say I, I, every single thing that I've written, it was a necessary thing for me to write. So if there's anything that I haven't written and you enjoy my work, I would encourage you to, to eat what's on the table. Um, But also I am, I'm working on something right now, which is extremely political in that it. absolutely has no evidence of engaging with um, the politicization of, of, of race or, or gender. And I 
you know, I'm writing it during the pandemic, having been in the pandemic for years and years, and um, I'm tired. I'm tired of, um, for, for me as an artist, as a black woman, my liberation is caught up and tied up in my art. And that's not, we can't even talk about whether it's something I enjoy because it's not a choice. It's necessitated by the state of the world. It's, ne it's necessitated by my oppression, right? So my work is my advocacy, is my, is my art, is my, you know, identity, is my, and it has to be and is all of these things. And every single thing that I've written is, is extremely important to me, most of which says something very strongly, indicts something very strongly, and is a gift, therefore, to the world. And I am tired of them, tired of the world. So um, what I'm working on right now is the very visceral interior. It's about the, you know, the emotional landscape and experience of, of humanness. Now I'm a black woman. So the majority of the characters are going to continue to be black women. The main characters are going to continue to be black women. Um, but if you are coming to it to learn something, go home. Um, if you're coming to it to learn something that you that you think is the only thing that I can teach you which is what it is to be a black woman and how to how to survive the world that you refuse to change um that's not what that's not what the project is about um it will absolutely get into your guts but it's it is it's actually universal versus just coding white as human um you know uh, so, so that's, I'm, I am very much in love with the project. It's sort of a return to, um, in a, in a lot of ways, it's a return to MEM. So for the people who, who started at MEM and, and stayed with me because of MEM, it's very much a speculative literary novella. Um, but it's, it's so much more interior even than that. It's, it's like, it, I mean, it probably is very true to what I have been doing for the last year, which is is getting further and further into myself. Um, because you just have to accept that some people do not, they know exactly what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose. They have no intention of stopping doing it. Um, and my entire life is not wrapped up in um, trying to be a come to Jesus moment for, for people. So this is, this is about me and it's about my art and it's about the prose and it's about, again, the, the interiority of, of humanness and about the fact that when we have tried repeatedly to use technology to improve the world and we have created all of these boogeymen where like the technology always ends up turning on us, which is kind of like a God complex. We want to kill our God. So we assume that anything that we're the God of would want to kill us too. And it's just the hubris is off the charts. Um, if you guys, if you make robots, they're not going to try to kill you. I don't know why you think they will. You need them to, to feel alive, I guess. Let it go. Um, that's not, they have no reason to do that. Anyway, um, so this is more about the fact that we keep failing our technology. I was writing this. I wrote the short story of this 
years and years and years ago. And what's really interesting is that everybody is going to think it's about um, vaccinations. Um, it's not, but I mean, you're going to see what you're going to see, I guess. Uh, but it's, but it's absolutely, it's absolutely about the fact that we are, we, we're, we're the problem. We keep being the problem. It's not the technology, it's us. <laughs> I just needed to hear speculative fiction. Yes. That I, I love, I love, um, I love sci-fi and spec, spec fiction. Yes. Specifically, I cannot talk. Um, yeah, I I was trying to convince Veronica to go into this deep dark world with me, <laughs> and because I think like spec writers really have this like vast, vast, vast like imagination. Like you would talk of that. Yeah. Like, nobody has made it yet. They're <laughs> sleeping on you, man. That's how I always feel. Yeah. So, I just I just think it's like such a mind project and I think everybody that does that genre really has this like deep understanding of the world that I think a lot of people think like oh they're just like a little bit on their like you know like kind of off the charts a little bit well you kind of have to be a little bit to be that creative I think that it's usually you know and especially with with people of color and indigenous and black people who who write speculative the reason we're better at world building, period, because even when white people write contemporary, it's fantastical. They're always writing fantasy. They can populate whole cities with just white people, and there's not a place on earth that that's true, right? So it's like our world building is superior because we deal in reality, and it's amazing. Your imagination will not be keen, will not be sharp, if you do not dwell in reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you live your whole life in a delusion, your world building is going to be equally unimaginative. Like it's going to be equally deluded. Um, you're going to have a bunch of thinly veiled tropes about different races of people and you know, allegorical bigotry and ridiculous things because you don't have the range. Like, you're you're not really interrogating the world that you live in so how could you imagine how could you take it further how could you take it a step further when you you can't even like you can't even pay attention here like come on so we've come to the part of our show that i love the most which is asking everyone we want to know your top five favorite books of all time or or you can do a mix it doesn't matter your top five favorite books that you are excited about that's that you want people to know that's coming out that you have friends that might be writing something or something that you might have read or watched whatever we just want to know what are your your top five I don't know how everybody else works but if you ask me my brain is contrarian and if you ask me for my favorite anything it will suddenly be a thing I have never heard of I didn't even know books existed like how am I supposed to like <laughs> tell you favorite books when there's no such thing as books. Um, <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, the very first thing that comes to mind is Karen Strong's Next Middle Grade, which if you don't read Middle Grade, do not let that deter you because baby, yes. it's a classic. It's, it's, a, it's, I mean, her range, okay? It's called Eden's Everdark. It is 
like it's a Southern Gothic, almost like return to Oz slash like Narnia slash, it's like a black, it's a black girl and it's a black world. The, the ever dark world is, a you know, and, it, and it's set on uh, one of the Georgia islands. And I mean, the mood, just the moodiness, just the ambiance, like it is so intoxicating. It is so intoxicating. It is so good. It is one of those books that you're like, if this isn't a movie within like nine months, I will riot. It's ridiculous. Like this, I cannot wait for people to read this book. It is so gorgeous. Um, Another book that I always, always, always will tell people about, of course, is Tochi on Yabuchi's Riot Baby, which I still maintain. He somehow wrote directly to me. Um, (laughs) It was just such a personal, it was just so, I mean, again, talk about speculative you know, in the hands of, of a, of a BIPOC creator, it's like just absolutely ridiculous. So, 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 so good. I just have so many personal tethers to that, to that story. And again, you know, novellas to me are, the novella to me is the perfect form, is a perfect format. Um, I just absolutely adore it. And so there is another one, which is Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. Uh, this also came out from tour.com. Um, and it is, it is just absolutely gorgeous. It's again, it's it's um, I consider it speculative literary. It's probably speculative uh, literary horror. Um, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, let's see. I mean, those are the three that immediately come to my brain, in, and not going back fifty years. Because I, <laughs> I hate, no, because I really, I'm always like, you know, there are, there are people writing right now, there are, you know, and that work is extremely important. And one of the ways that whiteness um, stops that progress is by getting really, really comfortable with um, talking about canon and classics. And um, they, they love a good, they love a good looking backward. They love a good uh, ignoring that there are currently people that need uh, support and are doing amazing work and are blowing minds and uh, they will absolutely be like oh yeah we love James Baldwin we love James Baldwin because he's dead like what are you mm-hmm. he's not he's not a threat to you yeah. right now right he's not a threat to your writing career he's not a you know so I obviously I don't have to tell people that James Baldwin is brilliant I don't have to tell people that I love Toni Morrison I don't have to tell people that I love Octavia Butler but unfortunately a lot of the time when when people want to focus on that uh particularly during you know Black History Month or Juneteenth or something like that it's because they still are unwilling to give time and space to the people who are actually working today um they don't want to deal with the inequity today so I really really would prefer to focus on contemporary writers and there's there's nothing wrong with that and I think it's absolutely warranted and I love hearing I love hearing about contemporary writers because I'm like we we got to make space you know exactly exactly we have to make demands today and and not always allow people to do an immemorial yes like okay well if you love them so much why don't you love their kin why don't you love their descendants like come on Mm -hmm. your book is is so good And I just want to say thank you so much for writing these stories. And I'm, I, I can't wait for everyone else to get the time to sit with this 
and to read whatever else that you come out with. And if you don't write anything else, this pleases my heart so much. And I just want to say thank you for that. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for having me. I love doing, I love doing podcast interviews because I don't, I don't like when people try, there's certain conversations can't be abbreviated. Um, You know, like I can't give you a quick and easy and bite-sized soundbite answer for certain things. Uh, If, I mean, I wrote a whole book about it. It it was obviously something that needed talking about for me. So um, I really appreciate the platform and and also just the way that you guys you know closely engaged with and read and read the work i i love when people read the work but every time people read something doesn't mean that they really read what i wrote um so um so it's always it's always just such an honor and a privilege to talk you know with people who've read my book (laughs) not their version of my book yes Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was a conversation that, you know, like we've always talked about like how authors would come up to our show and when, when we need that conversation to be had. And I think this, not only because it's your birthday and you need to be celebrated, (laughs) but you know, like this, these types of things come to our show for, for a certain reason. And we're Mm -hmm. very happy that it did that it got us like shaken up that I <laughs> straight you know that's a big deal yeah thank you guys so much thank you so much Bethany we are in awe and please you know I I know it's hard and please take some time for yourself because these stuff that you do is it's not easy work it's exhausting mm-hmm it's like mind heart soul breaking so yeah yeah please enjoy this birthday and turn up on yeah. the day. <laughs> I, I hope that by turn up you mean go roller skating and go to bed because that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> and you know what self-care is different <laughs> that is my self-care have yes. your face mask look dim lights and a nice bath Look, that sound you're that sounds that sounds so amazing. I love watching TV shows where people go out. That is God bless you. That is so amazing for you. I love that for you. But leave I'm at home. home. I'm at home. <laughs> I'm, for, I'm for these sheets, not for those streets. Okay? <laughs> I might use that. I might use that in a text. Look, I stole I stole that from somebody's meme and it was like a it was like a puppy asleep on something. And I was like, that's my that you're you're speaking my language. You're speaking my language. We're in these sheets. Out in the streets. <laughs> Thank you so much for gracing the show. <laughs> And you have a good night and a very, very happy birthday. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. 
When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.